Bibles and turn with me quickly to Matthew 18, verse 7. And we're continuing in our Stepping Stone series, and today I want to talk to you about stepping stones to healing and offense. Stepping stones to healing and offense. We've talked about turning a stumbling stone into a stepping stone. Then last week we talked about the stepping stones of faith. And today I want to talk to you about stepping stones to healing and offense. You know, you'd be amazed how God is taking our messages out in the highways and the hedges. I was visiting somebody in a nursing home this week, and he had a roommate. And this uh, man was in a, a wheelchair, but he was very, very alert, very cognizant of things. And when I walked in, he said, are you him? Are you the one that he brings the, your CDs in all the time? And I said, yeah. And he says, man, I miss Eddie. Now, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, I did that five-week series on Steady Eddie. He said, I sure do miss Eddie. He said, that really blessed me. So I said, that blesses me that you remembered Eddie. I miss Eddie too. If you don't know what we're talking about, you can get the series out there, Steady Eddie. But now, Matthew 18, verse 7, let's read what Jesus said about this little thing called an offense. He said, woe to the world because of offenses. Woe to the world. For offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Have you noticed today we live in an offended world? You can't turn on the TV without somebody being offended about something and suing somebody over something. The reason our our culture is so litigious is because of political correctness has just accelerated this phenomenon of being offended. Everybody's offended about something. But Jesus said, woe when offenses come because they can really do damage. So today we're going to talk about how to heal an offense. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today on healing offenses. And I want to pray, Lord, that you will deliver every person in this room from offense. Lord, help us to be free so that we can pursue God with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at your neighbor and tell them, don't be offended. All right, now, there's an old Aesop's fable. And let me just tell you that real quickly, this Aesop's fable, it's about a lion and a Roman slave who escaped from slavery. He ran into the forest to hide. And as the fable goes, he was suddenly encountered uh, by a lion. And he was terrified this lion was going to eat him alive. But as he looked at the lion, the lion didn't charge, didn't attack him. But he noticed the lion was limping and favoring his foot and had no intention of attacking the man. So he felt brave enough, courageous enough to finally approach the lion. And he lifted up his paw and looked underneath and here the foot was flaming red and just in great pain, and he noticed in the paw was a thorn. Well, as the story goes, he pulled the thorn out. Well, the lion, instead of eating him, licked him alive like a dog would, and was so thankful for the thorn to be out of his paw. Well, as the story progresses, both are recaptured. The slave is taken to prison, and the lion is taken to a lion's cage. And one day, they decided that in one of their 
meetings in the arena where they would feed people to the wild animals. They took this Roman slave out of prison and they put him in the arena to be eaten alive. And they had starved the lions for several days so that when they came out, they would come out ready to eat somebody or something alive. And the lion charged the man. But when he saw this particular man, he stopped because it was the very man who'd taken the thorn out of his paw. And instead of attacking him, he licked him. Well, everybody was so moved that the fable closes out with the man and the lion both being set free. And so it has a good ending. I like good endings. Now, here's the application. Many Christians are walking around limping. They are not the lions they could be and should be because they're limping over a thorn in their paw, and it's the thorn of an offense. And that offense has been in their heart, in their spiritual paw for so long that there is constant pain, it's a constant irritation, and they're never going to be everything they could be until the offense is healed. we got to understand the power of an offense. The Bible has so much to say about this, and I want us to understand how to be healed of one because we're all going to be offended. Jesus said, it is inevitable that offenses will come. How many of you have been offended in the last year? How many of you in the last week? How many of you since you came into church today? I don't want to know. Don't even tell me. (laughs) Don't even tell me. We're offended all the time. Things happen that offend people all the time. So let's understand what an offense is. Let me explain it to you. The word offense comes from the Greek word scandalon. And the way I like to illustrate this word scandalon is that when you're offended, there is a scandal going on inside you. When you've got a scandal on an offense, there's a scandal going on inside of you. Instead of the fire and the zeal of God ruling in your heart, Instead of love and compassion flowing out of your heart, you have been scandalized. You've experienced a scandal on, an offense, and that offense is what rules your heart. Uh, The word, if I had a rat trap here today or a mouse trap, and I thought about bringing one, but I was so afraid if I said it, it'd snap on my finger and ruin the whole illustration because I'd have to go out and fix my finger, so I didn't bring one. But if we had a rat trap here and and I said it, after putting cheese on that little trigger, and I pulled that jaw back and set it. The scandal on of the trap is that little thing that holds the cheese. So that when you bite it, when the mouse nibbles on it, down comes the trap on his head, and he is killed. A scandal on is whatever triggers inside of you an offense that brings the trap of bitterness and resentment and grudges and anger and negative ungodly feelings down on your head and traps you in a scandal on. I've been pastoring almost 25 years and I'm gonna tell you, I've seen the underbelly of the church, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church and I'm gonna tell you, I don't think the enemy has a better weapon with believers than a scandal on. Because it's so easy to be scandalized. Listen to Jesus again on this. I'm quoting Jesus. He said, it is impossible, but that temptation to sin will come. But woe to that person who does the tempting. Because you see, a scandal on is what 
is what causes a person to sin. That's what a scandalon is. It causes a person to sin either with anger or resentment or bitterness or sexual sin or some kind of habit that is sinful. And I'm going to expound on this a little bit more in a minute. But anything that causes someone to sin is an offense or a scandalon. Listen to another version. Jesus said, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. Woe to that person who does the tempting. So according to Jesus, we're all going to be offended. You will likely deal with an offense of some kind or another, major or minor, sometime this week. The way you handle an offense is going to decide very much how far you are able to go spiritually because the devil will try to sidetrack you and derail you and detour you with an offense if he can. I guarantee you. So an offense can be an enticement to sin that puts a stumbling block before a brother or a sister that they cannot handle. Let me give you an example. If you were to entice an alcoholic, brother or sister, with alcohol to the point that they stumbled and fell, you offended them. You were an offense to them. The enticement was the trigger that triggered the trap down on their head. And you were, and you were the offender and they were the offendees and they got offended by what happened. Remember when Peter was saying to Jesus, no, 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 Jesus, don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. Don't do that. And he began to try to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I rebuke you, Satan. You are an offense to me. What he was saying is, Peter, I love you. And here you are coming at me emotionally in a way that could sidetrack me or detour me from my ultimate mission, which is to die for the sins of mankind. So what you're doing, Peter, without realizing it, you're putting a stumbling block in front of me. So I'm calling it an offense. See, this is where we are, our brother's keepers. It's called, the, it's called the love principle. Listen to what Paul said. Paul wrote, therefore, let us resolve never to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. That's the law of love. You don't put a cause to fall in your brother's way. Now, an offense can also be caused by angering someone. Through harsh or insensitive actions or words. Or you can cause an offense by hurting another person's feelings. Through any one of a number of ways. Uh, lying, betrayal, breaking a promise. It doesn't really matter what it is. What matters is that it triggers that thing in them where the trap of offense, resentment, bitterness, some kind of sin is able to come down on them. See, when an offense like this takes place, it knocks the offended person. This is how it happens. It knocks the offended person temporarily down as they are forced to struggle their way into emotional and spiritual victory. See, if I'm hurt, if I'm angered, if something happens that offends me, the feelings I'm feeling are not godly feelings. And I'm having to struggle my way back into emotional, spiritual victory. 
because I've been offended. And that's how an offense happens, and that's why it matters. And I've got to overcome the ungodly negative emotions of anger and bitterness and resentment that floods my soul when I've been offended. Now, people are offended unintentionally, and they're offended intentionally, but we live in an offending world. And I've got to tell you, folks, we've got to learn how to deal with offense, or offense will deal with us. Some people are able to forgive and bounce back, and some people never really do. They live with a thorn in their paw the rest of their life. You can talk to them and say, man, what are you so angry about? Oh, I'm mad that so-and-so did so-and-so. Wow, when did this happen? 20 years ago. Really? 20 years ago. The way you're talking, it was like it was yesterday. But see, that's a clear signal that you got somebody offended that's never dealt with it. I promise you, God wants us to learn how to deal with offenses, or an offense will deal with you, take you down, water down your faith, affect your walk with God, cloud your vision. It will, it will grieve the Spirit of God in you to where you're really not producing fruit. So we've got to learn how to deal with offenses because we're all going to be offended. You may be offended today leaving the parking lot that's crowded. We're all going to get offended. Now, let me share with you a tale of two offenses. The first one is a guy named Absalom. Listen very carefully to this story. Absalom was David's son. And Absalom had a sister named Tamar and a half-brother named Amnon. So you got Tamar, Amnon, and Absalom. Now, the Bible says that Amnon decided that he was in love with Tamar, but he wasn't in love with her at all. He was in lust with her. And I'm going to tell you how we know, because lust cannot wait, and love never minds waiting. Lust cannot wait. Love rejoices when it has to. Love doesn't care. It says that Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel's hand. It says it was to him like nothing for the love he had for her. But old Amnon here, he thinks that he loves her, but he doesn't. He's in lust with her. And he just thinks he's got to have her. And the Bible says, it's, it's funny, 2 Samuel 13, 2, says this, Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick. Love sick. For she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. So he didn't know what to do. He wanted this girl. He was lusting after her, said that it was love, but it wasn't love. And he doesn't know what to do. Well, he's got a bad friend. And this friend gives him some very ungodly advice. And based on the advice of this ungodly friend, Amnon feigns sickness. And he calls for Tamar to come and, I guess, bring him some chicken noodle soup or something. So she comes in with the food. And the Bible says that when she arrived, he assaulted her. Now, here's the way lust works. After he had assaulted her, he didn't want to see her anymore. He kicked her out, and he added shame on top of shame. And she said, you've already done the wrong thing. Don't do another wrong thing and reject me. But that's the way lust is. Lust gets what it wants, and then it doesn't want what it got. Love always wants what it got. Now, word came to Absalom that this is what happened. 
Absalom, the Bible says, was tall, handsome, impressive, natural leader, bright, charismatic. But he was a devil on the inside because he never handled offenses the way that God would have wanted him to. When Absalom heard about it, he was struck with the offense. And I understand him being struck with the offense of this. It was offensive. It was wrong. Scripture records these words. Absalom hated his brother Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Well, so he hated him. So the offense festered and finally became hate. But, but that wasn't all. Because insult was added to injury. Because when David, the king of Israel heard about this. Not just the king and the, the ultimate justice dispenser, but the father of all these people. When word got to David, the Bible says that he became very angry over what had happened, but he didn't do a thing. He didn't dispense any justice. He didn't dispense any discipline. And this just drove Absalom crazy. He said, man, if you don't do something about it, I don't have enough faith towards God to do something about it, so I'm going to do something about it. So he took matters into his own hands. The Bible says that for two years he sat on this offense. Two years. And one day that offense had grown into him to such a level that it was like a cancer eating him alive. And he took matters into his own own hands as offended people almost inevitably do. Because if you don't handle the offense, the offense will handle you. And the way it handles you is you finally take some kind of action out of the will of God to handle the offense. So what we might call the annual sheep shearers convention came up. And this is where a bunch of shepherds would get together and they'd fellowship and I don't know what all they do, shear the sheep, I guess, I don't know. But it was a sheep shearers convention type thing. And they gathered for some fellowship and Absalom got special permission from King David to get Amnon to that convention. And he had already told his people when he's had a little bit to drink and the party's in full force, I want you to fall on him and kill him. And they did it. And Absalom had his brother executed His own servants executed him, and he murdered him. Now, from there, his tragic career of vengeance continued as he literally divided the kingdom. You know the story. He also had an offense towards his dad because his dad hadn't done a thing about it. Instead of forgiving him and going on, the offense festered, and he went and he would stand at the gate of the city, and he would say to all the people coming in who had a legal case, be like standing in the Fort Worth courthouse and everybody that came in with a legal case, he would say, what's your case? And they say, well, here's my issue. And he'd say, you know, I'm so sorry. My dad's not taking care of that like he should. But you know what? If I was king, I would. If I was king, I would. And he began to undermine David to his own people until one day, and this guy was good at it. Oh, he was so impressive, that long hair that he used to sell by the pound handsome, charismatic, stood there. And finally, the Bible says he took half of the hearts of the entire kingdom of Israel, stole them away from his daddy, and then set out to bring about a mutiny. And you know the story. He almost succeeded. David had to flee the city. He had to flee into the country. He ran, pouring ashes on his head, Shimei, 
ran along next to him, chunking rocks at him and dirt clods and cursing him. And it was a terrible, black, dark day for David, fleeing the wrath and the vengeance of his own son who had not forgiven him, but had this offense towards him. And it grew. Finally, while passing under a terebinth tree, Absalom got caught in the branches with his long hair. It pulled him off of his donkey and he was dangling. And here comes Joab, David's general. And against David's word, Joab pulled out a knife and began to thrust him through and killed Absalom. And Absalom died hanging from the source of his pride, that long, pretty hair. And he was a poster child for the power and the destruction that an offense can bring to you if you don't handle it. Now, let me take you to a lighter note and talk to you about a second offense, Joseph. Now, I can't read the story of Joseph without weeping. Can't do it. It's 30, it starts in chapter 37 of Genesis. It closes Genesis out in chapter 50. I mean, you talk about drama. You talk about something that ought to be on all my children or as the world turns. This is it. It's got all the makings of great drama. I'm surprised somebody hadn't done a movie on Joseph. Because when I get to around Genesis 48, 49, I'm just boohooing every single time. And I've read it a hundred times. It's so moving. Intrigue, betrayal, lust, love, romance. Everything is in this story. But you all know that Joseph was the favorite son of the patriarch Jacob. Who loved Joseph, the Bible says, more than all his children. And he had 11 brothers. Joseph was the 11th son. Jacob had 12 boys. Joseph was 11th. And it says he loved Joseph more than all the rest of his children because he was the son of his old age. And he was the son from Rachel who he loved. But, says the Bible... When his 11 brothers perceived that Jacob loved Joseph more than them, here we go again. It says they hated him. They hated him for it. How dare, who do you think you are? And to make matters worse, Jacob made him a coat of many colors. This beautiful coat of many colors. I mean, this was a beautiful, beautiful garment. And only Joseph wore it because it was only made just for him. And it was a picture and a symbol of the father's favor on him. And I got to tell you, if the Father God favors you, if he blesses you, don't expect everybody to rejoice with you. Because you got people standing off in the shadows, that green-eyed monster staring through their eyeballs. Jealousy. Joseph was betrayed because of jealousy, and the Bible says because of envy, Jesus was betrayed. When God blesses you with favor, the coat of many colors, as it were, there's going to be some people mature enough to rejoice with you, but a lot of them won't like you at all because you got favored. How dare you? How dare you be favored? And Joseph's brothers became offended. They got offended at him. And the offense grew into hatred and hatred into cruel betrayal because one day Jacob said to Joseph, go on out there and check on your brothers. And as he was coming, they were in a field and they began to hatch a plan as he was approaching them. And they said, here comes Mr. Hotshot. Now, this is the revised Wickwire version. Here comes Mr. Hotshot. Thinks he's got it all going on. Here he comes. Thinks he's really somebody. 
Let's show him who he really is. So as Joseph approached, they grabbed him and threw him down into an empty well. Can you imagine? And here he is going, what in the world is wrong? You're my brothers. To show the callousness of their heart, the Bible records that once they threw him down in the pit, they kicked back and ate a picnic lunch and just talked to each other about the weather and whatever else was on their mind while he sat down in a deep, dark, narrow, terrifying, empty well. But they didn't stop there. So deep was their hatred and so calloused was their heart that they saw some slave traders, Ishmaelites, coming down the road with their slave caravan. They said, that's what we'll do. We'll sell him into slavery and we'll be done with him forever. They hoisted him out of that well and they sold him into slavery. Now, you've got to put yourself in Joseph's shoes here. The Bible says in the Psalms, they, they hurt his feet with fetters. When he was betrayed and they put him on that slave caravan, they chained him where it dug into his ankles and dug into his feet. And all of a sudden, he's in a slave caravan. They, he's seen his brothers shell out money. Wait a minute, guys. I, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother, your blood. But so cold-hearted were they, so incredibly calloused over from an offense, that as he was being taken away, they weren't smiling, they weren't waving. The last memory that Joseph had in his mind of his brothers was cold, calloused, flint-like expressions as their own brother was being carried off into slavery. And as far as they were concerned, we ain't ever going to see him again. And were these guys cold? They took the coat of many colors, killed an animal, spilled the blood on it. This was before there was DNA. <laughs> took it to their Jacob and said to the father that loved him more than all of them put together, and they rubbed his face in it and said, Is this your son's coat? And he said, Yes. And I said, Animals ate him alive. And they let him believe it for years. They let him go to bed at night, crying his eyes out for years. He said, my, my gray head will go down to the grave in sorrow because my son has been eaten alive by wild animals. So cold-hearted were these brothers that they let him believe that for years. And you know what? For all those years, God didn't do anything to them. I got a problem with that one. But God didn't do anything to him. Now, to make matters even worse, here comes Joseph, and he's got the favor of God all over him. And he goes in there, and he's, he's put on the slave block. And a guy named Potiphar uh, buys him, takes him into his house. Everything that Joseph does, everything that he touches is blessed of God. So Potiphar puts, makes him manager over his whole household, but he's good-looking. This boy, Joseph, is good-looking, and the wife of Potiphar casts her eyes on him, and the Bible says she began to say to him, lie with me. And Joseph refused. He said, how can I do this great evil? I can't do this great evil to my master or to my God. Finally, the spurned woman got so angry that when he was in the house one day, she reached out and grabbed his garment, and he fled. And when he fled, she cried sexual assault and Potiphar's guards came in and saw the garment and she said this Hebrew slave tried to sexually assault me they went and they arrested him and threw him down into prison 
Now he's been sold into slavery, an innocent man, now thrown into prison for something he did not do. If anybody had a right to be offended and to wrap themselves in the cloak of bitterness for the rest of their lives, it was Joseph. But we don't find any evidence of any kind of bitterness on his part. Not any. One day the chief butler and the chief baker of Pharaoh are thrown out into prison. They're depressed. They're scared. They're terrified. But Joseph is not involved in his own problems at all. Because when he passes them and sees their long faces, he says, what's the matter, man? What's the matter with you guys? Cheer up. That's again the revised Wickwire slanted version. But that's what it is. And when we know that Joseph was not dwelling on himself or his own problems, because people who are self-obsessed and narcissistic and dwelling on their own problems don't notice other people's troubles. So what's the matter with you guys? And they said, oh, you know, and they told him all their, they told him some dreams they had. He interpreted the dreams. And long story short, you know the story. Joseph ultimately interpreted dreams that Pharaoh had had. And when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams about a coming famine, it says that Pharaoh pulled him out of that dungeon in a day, put a ring of authority on his finger. And Joseph, who had been wronged and rejected and betrayed and lied about and done, had so many things done against him that could have made him a bitter man, is delivered out of prison. I'm going to tell you why. Because it was God's will, but it was also because he was not offended. Catch this, church. He was not carrying an offense. And because of that, God was able to promote him, deliver him, and do something incredible with him. Now, when he is put out, and Pharaoh told the whole kingdom of Egypt... When you see Joseph coming, you bow down. When Joseph walks up, you bow down. I mean, he is granted incredible authority. Now, here's what's amazing. What is amazing is what he did not do when he got out. He did not send an army of men to his betraying brothers to bring them to justice. I would have. (laughs) Apart from the grace of God, I would have said, hey, army, come here. I got 11 bros down there in the promised land. Go get them. And they'd have gone, but it wasn't on his mind. You know why? He wasn't offended. He didn't send for Potiphar's falsely accusing wife to have her brought to court. How many of you would have? I guarantee every time she heard the cloppity clop of horses coming her way, she died a thousand deaths. But Joseph never did anything to her. When his own brothers were finally brought down to Egypt to escape a famine, instead of coming against them and executing them or imprisoning them, he told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to save many people alive. And it says that he took care of them, he protected them, and he fed them, and he gave them land, and he blessed them. You know why? Because he was not offended. This is the tale of two offenses. Offense destroyed Absalom, but offense did not destroy Joseph. Absalom was destroyed by offense. Joseph was freed from offense. One man grew bitter. The other man grew better. We want the stumbling stone of an offense to become the stepping stone of a promotion. Now, I want you to hear me today. When you're offended, and you will be, if you handle it the way Jesus taught us to handle it, The Bible says you're going to get promoted. How many of you would like for God to promote you? Just reach right down and promote you. 
How, how many of you, let me see that again. They got about a bunch of half mass here. If you want God to promote you, give me a great big amen. Amen. amen because when God promotes you, can't anybody stop that one. When God promotes you, you're going to be promoted and no flesh and no devil in hell is going to stop it. So listen to what the Bible promises in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. Peter says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. What happens when you bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you? What happens? The Bible says right here that God promotes you. God sees the way you handle your offenses. It is not what happens to you. It's how you respond to what happens to you that matters to God. Your response matters more to God than what happened. So again, how many of you want to inherit a blessing? inherit a blessing. So Peter says, if you don't revile with reviling, and if you don't return an evil for an evil, he said, God's going to give you a blessing. Now, Jesus was very clear about how to be healed of an offense. How many of you want to know how to be healed of an offense? Let me real quickly, I'm going to cover over three quick stepping stones to being healed of an offense because Jesus gave us the way out of an offense. He showed us how to take that trap off our neck and crawl out and be free. The first one, I want you to say this with me, is be proactive. In Matthew 18, 15, Jesus said, if your brother offends you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's Matthew 18, 15. I want you to say with me at Matthew 18, 15. You ought to know this one as much as you know John 3, 16. When your brother offends you, and he's not talking about some little light deal that's not really that big a deal that you're just being too sensitive. The word is trespass or sins. If your brother sins, trespasses against you, where you have become offended, he said, here's how you do it. You get proactive. Go. Can you say with me, go? Go to him between you and him alone and tell him what he did. Tell him his fault. Now, you know what that requires? It requires an eight-letter word that is almost a cuss word. And I'm going to tell you what it is. Confront. I don't like confrontation. I don't want to go to somebody and say, hey, you did something that offended me and it's hurt me. And you know what? I can't get past it. And we need to talk about this. I don't like doing that. You know what I'd rather do? I'd rather leave the situation or I'd rather sit and stew. How many of you are sitters and stewers? See, now it's how quiet it gets when I start talking about this in here. But let me just continue a minute. He says, go to the one that offended you. Now, I have never seen a true child of God. It's very rare that a true child of God, if you go to a real child of God who loves the Lord and say to them, you offended me, it's very rare that they do not want to somehow work that out. Very rare. But I want you to know that when all else fails, you follow directions. And Jesus gave us the directions, and all else will fail. If you sit and stew, you're going to become an Absalom. If you run from it, you're going to become a runner the rest of your life. But if you go and deal with it, notice with me that Jesus taught us 
to face our problems. So he said, go to them. Go to them and tell them what they did. Pray about it. Pray before you go. Get what you're going to say to them. Don't go scream in their face. Don't go all emotional. Strike while the iron is cold, not while it's hot. Once you've prayed about it and you're in the spirit, go to them and say, brother, sister, you said this or you did this or you didn't do this and you didn't say this. You did something or you didn't do something that has really hurt me. And I need to talk about this because this is what Jesus told us to do. And so I'm going to do it. So can we talk about this? Now, if they love the Lord, they'll say, you know what? I am so sorry. I didn't know about this. I didn't know that you were hurt. More times than not, you'll discover they weren't even aware they did it. So can you say with me, go to them. Then Jesus said, second, don't unnecessarily involve others. He said, you go to him between you and him alone. Everybody say with me, alone. You know what alone means in the Greek? Alone. (laughs) It means you don't go with anybody. Notice Jesus is getting out all the second and third parties here. He didn't say, call sister, tell it all. He didn't say, call brother, get on the phone. He said, I want you to go between you and him alone. Very, very important. He said, don't gather around yourself a group of sympathizers. Don't get on the phone and get a bunch of people to side with you. Then what you're doing is you're, you're doing is you're spreading what I call a secondhand offense. Now we've learned, this is why all the restaurants have kicked smoking out. Because now we know that smoking can give somebody lung cancer secondhand. That the person who's smoking and the only one that's going to get it, if you raise a child in a house smoking, and they're in that house, and they're in that car, and they're always exposed to secondhand smoke, that child can get emphysema, can get cancer, you can ruin their health later. A secondhand offense is just as dangerous as secondhand smoke. Secondhand offense is when you decide, well, I'm not going to go to the person who offended me. So I'm just going to, I'm going to gather a group of sympathizers. And you know, in the, in the Bible, they had professional, professional mourners at funerals. Did you know that? They would hire mourners and they'd come and boo-hoo with the rest of, best of you. They'd boo-hoo for you and cry for you and you pay them to do it. Do you know that there are professional sympathizers in churches who just gravitate to an offense because they're miserable and they love it when everybody else gets miserable with them, even if it's for a short time. So if there's, if there's an offense, they have radar that is 20 feet high. They can find an offense uncannily, zero in on it. Brother, tell me what's wrong so I can pray. Oh, well, here's what's wrong. No, did they really? Well, I'll pray about it. They're not gone 30 seconds. They're on the phone. Sister, I know you pray. I've got something I need to tell you about. There's a real problem with thus and thus and so and so. Now, I'm just asking you to pray. Oh, I will, brother. I will pray. You hang up from them. They're on the phone in 30 seconds. Before you know it, half the church knows about it. And half the church is playing a violin. And the church is divided now over an offense. And you got this section that has sided with the offended. This section that has sided with the offender. This section that doesn't know what in the world's going on. They just know something's wrong. (laughs) 
and the whole thing should have been handled between them alone. Now, let me tell you who doesn't come to the offended parties that play the violins. Jesus doesn't come. The Holy Ghost doesn't come. Matter of fact, he won't go near that thing because it is disobedience to the Word of God. We need to be going to the offender and working it out. This is what Jesus was trying to head off at the path. He knew that in churches there would be offenses, in families there would be offenses, at workplaces there would be offenses. So what are you going to do with that offense? You've got to go to the person if at all possible, and work it out between you and them alone. Can you, so can you say with me, don't unnecessarily involve others. You're not doing them any favors. And I want to say to those of you who pick up offenses, if I came in here with a 104-degree fever and I was sick as a dog and I sneezed in your face, would you say, thank you, Jeff, I really, I thought I was hoping for today in church. You would say, thanks a lot, man. You're sick as a dog. You should have stayed. You just made me sick. But see, when you dump an offense on people and they pick it up, they are now as contagious as you. And you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that the person who picks up secondhand offense is often more offended than the one originally offended. They got that secondhand offense. And then whoever they tell picks it up. And whoever they tell. Before you know it, a church or a family or a workplace is divided. If, if they're not a part of the problem or a part of the solution, don't involve them. Third stepping stone to healing and offense is, and the last one, is to practice forgiveness whether or not they respond. Now I've got a newsflash for you. Just because somebody says they're a Christian doesn't mean they're going to obey God. Is that a news flash to any of you? If it is, beam them up, Lord. Because just because somebody says, I'm a Christian, doesn't mean they're going to obey God. So here you come, and you've got the offense, and you're going to sit down with them and say, look, I've been offended by this, that, or the other. If they look at you and they say, you know what, tough luck, I'm really sorry, but you know, life is tough and then you die, have a great life. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to make it right. I am not going to cooperate with reconciliation. What do you do then? Well, first of all, don't be shocked. Second of all, here's what you do. You got to realize it takes one to forgive. It takes two to reconcile, but it takes one to forgive. And I've had to learn that if people will not reconcile, because that takes two, it takes two every time. If they won't reconcile, then you've got to forgive. Now, here's the verse I go to. When that man in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, when it was discovered, he was in illicit relations with his stepmother. Paul wrote the Corinthian church, and here's what he said. In my absence, I have forgiven him. Now, that's powerful. Here's what he was saying. I don't have to see him. He doesn't have to say anything to me. He said, in the presence of Christ, I have forgiven him. So I don't need somebody to say, okay, we'll, we'll work this through and reconcile for me to be free. If somebody wants to be ornery, they can be ornery alone. I can forgive. 
And I can forgive in the presence of Christ by using the power of my tongue. Because James said, your tongue is like the rudder of a ship. You can have a huge cruise ship, but that monster is turned by a rudder underneath the water that you can't even see, or a powerful snorting horse, but he's turned by a little rain, a bit in his mouth. You can turn your heart by what you say. And when you say, I forgive them, Ah, uh, you may not get your mouth open, but you get it out somehow. I, 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 I forgive them. And you say it, and you say it, and you say it. That trap begins to be lifted off your head. Because your emotions are driven by decision. You are not to be emotion-driven. You're to be decision-driven. And when you decide to forgive and say it with your mouth, over and over, every time that offense comes up and you start rehearsing it, I forgive them, I forgive them, I forgive them. They can't stop that, and the devil can't stop that. Nothing can stop that. And it will eventually set you free and get that thorn out of your paw. You're going to walk around with a thorn in your paw the rest of your life? Or are you going to be set free? This is what you got to do with even people who have died. What do you do with somebody who abused you, wronged you, maybe half ruined your life, but they've died? How do you get your heart clear? You forgive them in the presence of Christ. Can we stand together? Well, how many of you needed this today, even though it was painful? Amen. I want to pray that not a person in our church has a thorn in their paw. We've got too much going on. Amen. Let me pray for you, Father. I pray for our precious people. I thank you, Lord, for this congregation and you're leading us to a place of great effectiveness where we can't have thorns in our paws. We can't. We've got to be able, Lord, to run full speed unencumbered. Now, Father, I pray, starting with myself and flowing out to this church, help us, Lord, to be freed of any offense. If you've been offended and you're struggling with this, lift your hand quickly. Lift it up, and I want to pray for you. Many, many people. Father, I pray, help us to be delivered from offense. If it's first-hand or second-hand or third-hand offense, help us to be delivered. Help us to forgive. Lord, I pray that that thorn is taken out of the paw. For many, many hurting people are going to be flowing into these doors, Lord. And we've got to be free. Now, Steve sings, I want you to take a minute and pray. If this has spoken to you and you need to settle anything, don't be an Absalom, be a Joseph. Let's pray as Steve plays. Amen.